0: I'm McNulty and you're listening to Secure Ventures, the show that follows cutting-edge founders in the cybersecurity space to understand their plights, glories, and revolutionary products. With me in this episode is Sudesh Kumar. After graduating from one of India's premier universities and an early career in networking, he caught the entrepreneurial bug and has since founded several technical startups. His current company, Kapalya, enables organizations to secure endpoint data through user-friendly encryption applications. The team recently received an extremely competitive $250,000 grant from the National Science Foundation for anti-ransomware features, and they'll be raising a crowdfunding round in the coming months. Follow Secure Ventures on LinkedIn and Twitter to hear when they open up the opportunity. Sudesh, thank you for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you, Kyle. Great to be here.
0: All right. So you graduated from the Indian Institute of Technology in Kharagpur in 1985 in electronics and communication engineering. Now, when did you first become interested in electronics? Was that just the major of choice, or did you have a, a history before college?
1: No. So this was in high school. I was very, like you know, um, intrigued by physics, and uh, at that time, you know, the computer technology and electronics was evolving, um, and not too many people were attempting to go in that field. And for me, you know, that was something that always intrigued me. There was something that always interested me. And so I was like, okay, um, this seems like a very exciting, you know, career path. And uh, at that time that not too many universities were offering that program. Hmm. And um, so, I mean, I originally grew up in Fiji. So I mean, even though my ancestry is from India, but I was born and raised in Fiji, and uh, to get into the IIT program, it's very, very difficult. You have to go through a process, um, and um, for me, you know, I had to apply, and um, you know, they only select um, from Fiji. Only one candidate was selected to go to the IIT, uh, and that happened wow. to me. yeah, and that was that was me. Um, so. Yeah, I was like, you know, one of the uh, the top students in the country. So, so we got, I I I got admission to the IIT, and it was not only was it just um, an admission, but it was also a full on scholarship. So that means I didn't have to pay for anything. Yeah, so the government paid for everything else, and this was part of the incentive that the government had to promote, you know, science and technology. And so, yeah, so I was part of that program.
0: Interesting. Okay, and so you mentioned that kind of early interest in electronics as well that presumably kind of helped you with that that application process and that full scholarship was there a first passion project that kind of comes to mind when you think oh this was the the first experiment that that you kind of played around with uh, as an individual that formed that love for electronics
1: yeah, so one of my uh, brother's friend used to work in the government's, um, you know, they called it back then EDP, electronic data processing. And so I, you know, asked my brother, I said, hey, can I go take a look at this thing? And he goes, sure. So we, we went in and he showed me and they were like these huge, big IBM machines with tape <laughs> drive spinning and everything else. I'm like, whoa, man, this is like crazy stuff, right? <laughs> So I'm like, you know, how do I get introduced to this? And he was like, well, yeah, you need to go through a four-year engineering program and not too many people offer it, but yeah, you Mm -hmm. can do that. So I'm like, wow, I was like super intrigued by that. I'm like, okay, I I think I want to do this. So that's, that's, that's what inspired me.
0: Interesting. So is it fair to summarize then that it was kind of the complexity of the machine that intrigued you, just all the, the kind of unknown aspects of it to you that you wanted to learn more about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was it was like you know, uh, kind of like wow, these machines can do what? And you know, and and the, and you know, my, my brother's friend, he was telling me that um, you know, this is just the beginning. You will be amazed at what these machines will do in future. And I'm like, like what? And he goes, it, it's up to your imagination. Whatever you want it to do, we can make it do uh, as time goes on. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to be part of this revolution. So I, I, I want <laughs> it. So that's what happened. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay. So before we dive any further into the, the kind of career post-graduation, I noticed that you were the the captain of the basketball team at mm-hmm. IIT there. Was that ever a dream for you to to play professionally? What was the, the kind of internal conversation there between <laughs> computing and, and basketball?
1: So, I mean, um, uh... So at that time, when I was at IIT, there were five campuses. Um, Until today, I think, uh, you know, Kharagpur, where I graduated from, is the only campus that is not in a metropolitan city. So all the other campuses are in major uh, metropolitan cities. Kharagpur is like about um, 120 kilometers, you know, uh, west of the big city of Calcutta. And that was that is the reason why, you know, the Indian government built it there was it was its own, you know, self-contained campus. It's, uh, I forget the actual acreage, but it's like, you know, very, very big campus. Hmm. And the idea was that all the students would mingle and then, you know, bond and then, you know, start doing stuff together. And so doing that, there, you had nothing else to do once you leave campus, <laughs> there is nothing else out there. So you had to spend pretty much 24 hours within inside the campus. And there are so many things that you had to do. And sports was one of them. So, um, you know, I considered myself pretty tall. I'm like 6'2", and I'm like, hey, I can do this. So I'll play basketball, (laughs) right? So so I did. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I was the captain one one year. Um, The other thing that you may not know is that I was also the president of the Electronics and Electrical Communication Engineering Department um, in my final year. So, um, you know, we're very proud of that. And I was also the president of the international students' organization, and we would organize trips to go, um, you know, and visit historical and cultural sites uh, all across India, right? So did all of mm-hmm. that as well. Yeah.
0: So but just then, in case.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But then when I when I moved uh, to the United States, I was like, let me let me try this basketball thing. And then I then I very quickly realized that I was the shortest guy on the team. I'm like, no, this is not going to work. <laughs> So I quickly dropped that idea and like stick to your day job, stick with computers, man.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's a, it's a whole nother thing over here to be sure. Okay. So you graduated in 1985, like we already mentioned, right? Yeah. What I saw is that you started your career as a network engineer in 1989. So there's Mm -hmm. kind of that four-year gap there. What was in that four years? What's, what's maybe missing in that time period?
1: No. So those four years, I was actually working as a systems engineer for NCR. Um, So I I, I don't mention that, uh, but that's basically what happened. So as soon as I graduated, I moved back to Fiji and I was working for NCR. So in Fiji back then, there were two big companies that were providing computer systems. One was IBM. The second was NCR. Uh, but it was NCR um, New Zealand Limited. So we, we were as uh, and the branch in Fiji was just a subsidiary of the New Zealand entity. So I spent a considerable amount of time actually in New Zealand, which is not shown mm. uh, on my profile. But yeah, I spent quite a bit of time in Auckland and also in Christchurch.
0: Got it. Yeah. Mm. Admittedly, I was kind of hoping for some sort of like spiritual enlightenment journey, like many of the the millennials today coming out of university <laughs> and then going on a a vision quest before starting a starting a full career there. Uh, but that sounds much more productive, at least from a, a strictly career aspect. Okay. So you continued in networking for several, several years. And so we're jumping ahead a little bit here, uh, but you worked at several different companies, ended up working at a professional services firm, and then you started eWATS in 2009. Can you tell me a little bit more about that story? Was that the first entrepreneurial endeavor that you'd undertaken?
1: Actually, the second. So before second. that, I was running another uh, consulting company. And what we were doing is we were doing a lot of network consulting. Uh, my journey started you know, in Canada. Then I moved to New York. And then from New York, I moved to California, which is where I'm at right now. Um, and then uh, b- before EWATS, I was, uh, you know, I started a consulting company and um, you know, we were doing a lot of uh, network consulting and everything else. And then, um, you know, I decided and, and I was also doing a lot of, you know, Wi-Fi implementations. And uh, so I was one of the pioneers in implementing Wi-Fi at hotels and auditoriums and everything else. So I did, did a whole bunch of work on that side. Um, and then during this this whole journey, um, you know, I met some people that were saying that, you know, um, the actual monitoring of solar systems is being done, but it's not done using, you know, very great technology. Some of, some people are using RFID, and since you're in the Wi-Fi space, why don't you try using Wi-Fi to, to do this? And I'm like, yeah, okay, but somebody else must have done it. And to my surprise, I didn't find too many people doing it. In fact, the pattern mm-hmm. that compiled uh on on the solution that we had uh still um no i don't think anybody else is doing so what what we did was it doesn't make sense to do it on like small residential systems but on solar farms is where it gets uh, really interesting uh, to manage monitor and maximize the power output of solar farms um you know a lot of different technologies are being used one prevalent one is called SCADA and that is very expensive to implement. It requires a whole bunch of truck rolls. It requires a whole bunch of personnel and everything else. So our technology was using Wi-Fi not only to manage and monitor the um, the output of you know the solar solar arrays in the solar farms, but we were able to maximize it. So we would in real time use data analytics to see which panels were producing, which were panels were not producing as much, hmm. and, and we could we would be able to bypass the non-producing panels and then send a, a repair technician to go out either to replace the panel or to, you know, see what was going down. Maybe it was dusty, just dusted down or whatever it is. So that way it minimized, you know, um, the, the the amount of truck rolls that people had to make. And we were able to like, you know, in a solar farm of let's say five or 10,000 panels, pinpoint exactly which panel was the one that was the culprit. Uh, so that would save a lot of time and energy and, and, and you know, a lot of effort required in troubleshooting, right? So that's basically what EWATS was about.
0: Hmm. So it sounds like that was kind of a, an application of Internet of Things technology, which didn't really take off until maybe a decade after that.
1: Yeah, exactly. I was so I was super early for it. I I had I had actually designed an IoT device before people in the industry knew what IoT was. So <laughs> I was I was way ahead of my time, and the eventual goal was you know to embed it inside every single solar panel that gets shipped out of a factory. I mean we had a contract already with a large time one is manufacturer. And so they were ready to embed our chips in and everything else. And um, so unfortunately we had the prototype and everything else was working. We had the software done, that was all working. We, we could even, we even had mobile apps for it. So we could do it that way. Uh, so getting it to the chip level required some significant amount of investment. And uh, unfortunately around that same time, uh, you know, this big company in Fremont, California, um, you know, called Solyndra, they went bankrupt. And so that sent shockwaves in the solar industry and in the PV ah. space. And uh, so, yeah, so we were not able to raise any funds uh, to make it into hmm. a chip. And, and that's the reason why I had to fold that company.
0: Interesting. So yeah. what were your thoughts at the end of EWAT's life cycle? right? It sounds like you had a a promising idea. You mm-hmm. had presumably a, a dedicated team at that point, you're a couple yeah. years in, mm-hmm. you had plans to continue growing. And then it sounds like you were really subject to just other environmental factors, right? In terms of some of these other companies that were failing that, that made it more difficult for you to actually raise money. So how did that influence your outlook on entrepreneurship as a whole? Did you feel kind of helpless and that everything was just I guess, targeted against you?
1: Yeah. So, you know, that was that was a very, um, I would say, tough, you know, learning experience for me. Uh, what that taught me was that, you know, even if you have the greatest idea, even if you have the best team, um, there are so many dynamics that are way beyond your control that could crush your company in no time, which is really what happened. And uh, so these circumstances that happened—I mean, th- there was a global, you know, wipe shakedown of the sh- solar industry. I mean, we're just a small startup, but major established companies worldwide in Europe, in Germany, uh, and in the, even in the U.S. and, and in Japan—they all went bankrupt overnight because of the crisis, right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't—it wasn't, it wasn't just Solyndra. Solyndra was one of the things, but it was like a global impact. Um, and then it took a little while before the solar industry came back again. So. What that that, that uh, the, what that taught me was that, you know, yeah, being an entrepreneur is great, but a lot of things have to align in your favor in, in order for you to be successful. And that was one of the things that was extremely, like, I mean, completely beyond my control. There was no way that I could have, you know, predicted what was going to happen right. and uh, how it happened and how it affected the whole market. Uh, it was like completely beyond my control. Yeah. So, I mean, that, was, that is one thing that I learned that, you know, you always have to be uh, mindful of and watch out for external circumstances that are way beyond your control. And that is one of the major risk factors that you have to keep in mind when you're going on this journey.
0: Right. Right. And so that was in, I think, 2011, 2012, or thereabout, mm-hmm. right, where Ewats folded. And then yes. rather than maybe making another stab at, at a new company, you went back into industry. So, what was kind of the the thinking there? Did you just decide it's time to maybe wait until another good idea hits you?
1: Well, that, it was that, but the second was all financial, right? So, when you're running a Got startup, it. you you have to have uh, sustaining power. Um, one that you have to also feed your family, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and and two, you have to pay all your engineering staff and everything else. And I put a lot of my own money into that venture as well. Um, so. It was just a you know financial decision that you know what um, maybe I should go back to industry and then you know um, you know see that I, I need to stabilize myself first before I go into my next venture, but that that whole bug the entrepreneurial bug was already always with me right it never left even though I had this harsh reality of you know external <laughs> circumstances coming in and you know hitting me in the face, um, I was still like you know I still want to be this because this is this is something that gets in drilled into us when, even back when we were at IIT, in IIT we were told like, you know, we are IITians. we are like, you know, the best of the best. Our job is not to go get a job. Our job is to go create jobs. And if we haven't created jobs, we haven't fulfilled our IIT dream. So that's basically, you know, that, that thing is still instilled in me. Yeah. Hmm.
0: Okay. So let's, let's talk about that transition back into entrepreneurship then, right? Because yeah. like you said, you were looking for that financial stability. Well, it mm-hmm. sounds like it took you about three years to get it. And then yeah. in 2015, you dove into Capalia, which is your most recent venture. You're going on over six years at this point. Mm-hmm. What is kind of the origin story for Kapalia? What inspired that?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, at that time when I started and registered the company, I was still just, you know, re- really not sure if this idea was going to fly or not fly. And, um, you know... So I was just working on it part-time, very part-time. Um, so really, I did not uh, dive deep and start the company really until 2018. So it wasn't, 2018 mm. is when you would say that, you know, since 2018 is when I've been dedicating my full-time and efforts to Kapalia. So Got it. so what happened was um, uh, I was uh, a consultant, um, you know, working with Gartner and uh, our client was the state of Hawaii. So you know, I was working on a project to um, implement their private cloud. And, uh, you know, I was one of the program directors, technical program directors managing, you know, multiple vendors, putting on a a private cloud for the government. And after that was pretty much okay, then um, I got pulled aside to, you know, look after the elections uh, systems. And it was, you know, uh, made clear to us that uh, the 2016 presidential elections data you know, would be compromised, not within, from the United States, but from external countries. So, you know, I was put in charge and I worked very closely with the elections folks. um, And my job was to make sure that, you know, the 2016 presidential elections data for the state of Hawaii uh, does not get compromised. So, and then when I looked at that, um, you know, uh, I was working, you know, very closely with a, a lot of government agencies at that time also, Uh, And when I looked at, you know, how, where all the data is and everything else, and um, so, you know, I had already had the idea of Kapalia back then, then I implemented this solution, and then I was like, okay, this data needs to be encrypted, and it needs to be encrypted in a way that is non-intrusive to the end users, uh, and it makes it as difficult as possible for the cyber criminals to, you know, intrude and exfiltrate this data. And but how do you do that, you know, in a manner that is, you know, feasible and also scalable and also it's very, very user friendly. And um, so the idea is that, you know, if you have unstructured data and by unstructured data, what I mean is that these are files and folders um, that people store information on. Most people think that all of the data that companies have is stored in structural databases, you know, like the big companies like Oracle, for (laughs) example, have the big databases, you think everything is stored there. But all the recent reports uh, show that, you know, almost 75 to 80% of all enterprise and government data is in unstructured format, meaning people would pull a report from these databases and all and have it in Excel spreadsheets, this, that, the other, everywhere else. And we create more unstructured data than structured data. So that was the biggest challenge that I saw, that there was a lot of data that had uh, been, you know, put in unstructured format and they were sitting on multiple places on endpoints. And when I say endpoints, I mean laptops, desktops, you know, on mobile devices, iPads, smartphones, they were offloading to cloud and everything else. And the idea was to encrypt all of these things seamlessly across the board. Um, But encryption was just one aspect of it. See, a lot of people, when I talk encryption, they're like, well, no, they do what's what's the big deal about that? Everybody does encryption. Mm-hmm. So it's not, the, the challenge is not encryption. The, the challenge is actually managing the encryption keys. So if um, you have encrypted your data, but if you have left your key in a place where anybody can steal it, then what's the point of encrypting your data? I'm just gonna steal right. your key and I'm gonna decrypt your data, right? So the platform that we have developed, Kapalya's encryption management platform, is actually an encryption key management platform, meaning, that we are able to encrypt uh, and manage the keys for all your encrypted data across multiple platforms, whether it's a laptop, whether it's a desktop, whether it's a smartphone, whether it's a tablet, whether it's cloud storage, and we do that very, very seamlessly. And we do that for like one user or 1,000 user or 10,000 user across the board. So we are completely cloud agnostic, we are completely endpoint agnostic, we are completely mobile agnostic. So we don't care which operating system you're using, which mobile device you're using, which cloud storage you're using, we will manage the encryption keys for that particular organization across the board, right? So so based on my 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 work that I did, you know, um, and, and the knowledge that I gained um, doing, you know, protecting the elections data uh, for the state of Hawaii in 2016 is what, you know, excelled this idea to say, hey, this is basically what I discovered And then I started talking to other people within the industry and they said yeah man we have the same issue and I'm like oh okay Mm -hmm. so this is a much bigger issue than you know just just um, you know elections data this is like uh, across industry-wide across government-wide and so I was like okay so let's build something and let's see where it goes so then we started building and then it wasn't until like 2018 when we had like kind of our first official launch so if you look at you know we officially launched our product in uh you know august of 2018 when we had our first ga product released and then since then you know we've been refining it and everything else and doing market validation you know and and checking on how the industry is working and and how receptive people were to this kind of technology so that kind of is the is the journey of kapalya
0: okay yeah mm-hmm. I, i'd love to to dive into that in a bit more detail right so yeah. uh, it sounds like 2015 to 2018 there's some work going on behind the scenes getting mm-hmm. ready for that product launch i noticed that on your LinkedIn, you were listed as CEO and founder, but then also acting CTO since 2015 or 2016. So were you basically just kind of a, a one-man show for the beginning there? What did that look like from a, a team standpoint and just responsibilities?
1: Yeah. So so me and a bunch of friends, we kind of got together and we said, we'll do this. Um, but uh, it was pretty much, you know, I was doing the bulk of the work. Sure. And then one of one of my friends, uh, and you know, he's he was since he was with me since the get go, and he's one of my co-founders. Um, so later on, I said, you know what, this is getting serious. I'm going to offload the CTO response. I mean, he's a very technical uh, engineer, so I said I'm going to offload the CTO responsibilities to you. And so I've he is the current CTO, and I'm the CEO. So that's basically how it works.
0: Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So walk me through that, that first year, let's say 2018, not 2015. You mm-hmm. have the product launch. You have how many employees at that time?
1: So that time we had three employees in the US and I had an offshore development team of eight engineers.
0: Oh, wow. So mm-hmm. big offshore reliance there as well. So yeah. I'm sure all sorts of uh, potential challenges then with that kind of initial maybe funding and, and team, what did that first year really look like for you? What were some of the, the key wins and, and challenges?
1: Yeah, so the, the biggest challenge in the life of any startup is making sure that you have enough capital. And so that has been my struggle uh, throughout. And um, uh, as far as you know, initial customer wins, we got a few customers here in the Bay Area that, were, that was looking promising. Everything else was looking good then, uh, you know, our funding was not getting to where we needed it to be. So, so that initial 2018, we were very excited. We had good things happening, but then in 2019, um, you know, and at the end of 2018, beginning of 2019, we, we then joined an accelerator program called the Alchemist Accelerator. And I said, you know, that was going to get me what I needed to do to raise my next round of funding and everything else. Um, so, so that was all going uh, very, very nicely. Um, and then, uh, you know, my initial funding started drying out. So then I had to make some adjustments to see um, which employees to retain, which ones to let go kind of thing. And that's just the life of a startup. Uh, it's it's, it's, a, it's a big juggling act. Right After we finished the, um, you know, the Alchemist Accelerator program, uh, then you know I did oh I forget I don't know 35 40 VC meetings and everything else, huh. um, yeah. And but again you know the the feedback that I got back then was you know from the VCs was like no, the market is too crowded, cybersecurity is overfunded. You know, and, you know there is no way you'll survive and you know all the kind of stuff, right? So needless to say that I didn't get funding. Um, so that that was like you know. From which is the life of an entrepreneur, right? From excitement down to the next day, you're like, "Oh man, why am I doing this?" You know. (laughs) (laughs) So went through all that roller coaster, right, and uh, ups and downs and everything else. Um, And then you know, uh, at the end of 2019, uh, we get introduced to another company. Like in in the in the middle of it, I mean, uh, just just as a side note, right? Um, We we got. Uh, good traction with, you know, within the government space. And then, um, you know, I did presentations to the Department of Defense. And uh, they actually invited me um, over to the Pentagon. So to present to the, to the CIO Council. So yeah, I did that, you know, they, they liked everything that they saw, but they were like, you know, we have a very specific use case that we want to solve. Mm. And so I was like, okay, the product that I have currently does not specifically solve for that particular use case, but you know, we can, we can work with you to do that. So, um so that, that is still out there. I mean, I still have to circle back with them, but, you know, because I was running out of funds and I was like, okay, I need to, you know, get this thing um to make sure that the company survives. um So then I had to, you know, scale back on, on my resources and I had to scale back on my staff. And then it was pretty much then just me and my co-founder in the U S and we scaled down our offshore development team, but we'd still just, kept the ball rolling and everything else. And then um, we get introduced to this very large company. Um, they're headquartered in Irvine. And, uh, you know, they they got interested in the in this. And uh, then I in February of January, end of February, early, yeah, end of January, early February in 2020, uh, you know, I went and met their team in Dubai and they got super excited and everything else. And they had a whole bunch mm-hmm. of customers lined up. And they said, yeah, this is good. I met like seven of their customers, six of them wanted to do our trial immediately. So we got everything else. Yeah, so that was great. So then um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the my main contact at this company, he was like, okay, you sure you have the financial backing to support all of these customers? And I was like, to be honest with you, I don't. So he goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for funding. So he goes, well, why don't we become one of your investors? So then he introduced me to um, their CEO. And, um, you know, so we started uh, having discussions and, you know, things um, uh, were looking good. And then, of course, COVID hit. And then for like right. a couple of months, we had no idea what we were doing. No, because nobody had any idea what right,
0: we were doing. Right, right. Not alone there.
1: <laughs> yeah. So so then in... Uh, uh, like late July, we reconnected and I'm like, hey, you know, I mean, do you, are you still interested in funding everything else? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all, it's all there. But you know, this whole COVID thing threw us off balance and everything else. I said, fine. So then in September, we closed our seed round with them. So we were very excited mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. And uh, so that, that is basically, you know, and then we started engaging uh, like that was end of September. And then October, November is when I started engaging with their team. And we've got some solid traction going with them. We've got you know trials happening in dubai and we got you know some stuff happening in poland we signed up a reseller in uh, south africa so all of those things started happening um and then this year you know we started working with you know other companies uh here in the us and uh you know we've got uh, stuff happening with like some very large companies um in india as well that that are looking at this they are like you know this is something that is needed right now so all of a sudden uh back in 20, 2019 when people were like you know cyber security not really to like in 2021 right now <laughs> cyber security yes man we want this thing we want this thing now kind of thing yeah
0: interesting okay so maybe just to try to to summarize that briefly right you back in 2018 were putting in a lot of your own money you and and your co-founder presumably you had a a big offshore team mm-hmm. well when kind of late 2019 came around you weren't able to raise money like you hoped Mm -hmm. then you had to start letting go of some of that team it was Mm -hmm. you and your co-founder you were in contact through this potential customer and and partner Mm -hmm. uh, and then they ended up getting some some funding secured for you in kind of later 2020 even Mm -hmm. despite all of the the covid challenges which is impressive in itself and then uh, that's kind of brought you to where you are today is that all a fair summary
1: pretty much pretty much yeah um so the we did have initial um investment right we have uh, our initial investor is still part of the company he believed mm. in me uh we we met actually in hawaii uh and you know i said i'm starting this and he goes okay what do you guys What are, what is it that you're doing and i said well this is what i'm thinking of doing this that the other and and he goes, okay, you know, and what are you looking for? I said, Well, I'm looking for some investment so that I'll have to hire some engineers to build the prototypes and everything else. So he he actually invested, so he was our first investor. So that that carried us through, you know, uh the development efforts and everything else, through the 2018 timeframes and everything else. Yeah. So that was mm-hmm. the only part you you did not capture. Yeah.
0: Okay. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so now today you mm-hmm. acquired your your seed round late last year. Mm-hmm. This is Nine months later, this episode is being recorded in in late June here. So how big is the team now?
1: Yeah. So what we've done is we've augmented the team like crazy. Um, So we have, you know, four people working for us in in the U.S. My team in in India is still there. I have, you know, some more team, uh, a small team in Vietnam as well. Um, So we are truly, truly international. And... um, What we are doing right now is we are um, also working with, you know, a very, um, I would say, uh, security um, uh, three letter agency in the United (laughs) States, which is like the biggest agency there is. And um, they are very excited in our technology and they are uh, looking to, you know, license some of the technology to us that we are speaking to them right now. So I cannot not go into too much of the details, but right. that, that technology um, combined with our technology will become the most comprehensive you know, counter ransomware solution in the market. So mm-hmm. we are in active discussions with them and um, uh, we have applied for a government grant as well. And we are hoping that that grant announcement will be made very shortly here. Uh, you know, what that will allow us to do is sell into the federal government space, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, so that opens uh, like a whole bunch of doors, right? But just the fact that a three-letter agency, federal government, uh, you know, uh, is very excited to work with us just just shows you that, you know, what we have built uh, has caught the attention of some of the top brains uh, in, in our country.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that's that's awesome momentum there, right? I mean, it sounds like you've kind of gone through the ups and downs as any founder and and entrepreneurial endeavor uh, does but kind of bringing this back around despite the funding challenges and and making headway with such a big potential customer like you mentioned is is very impressive Mm now one of the things that that we talked about previously is you're actually hoping to go through a crowdfunding round Mm -hmm. for the the next little source of capital here Uh, walk me through that because obviously crowdfunding has gained a lot of popularity over the last year or so Uh, big companies like gum road have really popularized that in a lot of circles Uh, why did you opt to go through this strategy and and what's it been like for you so far
1: yeah so um as i said now that we've got you know good traction now that you've got you know trials going on with like you know multiple uh organizations you know the largest trial is with a $20 Twenty billion dollar company that is, you know, they're very excited about our technology. They want to roll it out globally. Uh, you know, so we've got huge momentum, huge traction going on. Um, and I've been doing the the traditional VC route, saying, "Hey, you know, I want to raise my next uh, next round." Uh, it's the same thing that you know, you, you go through the motions and everything else. Very tiring, very exhausting. <laughs> and um, yeah, and then you know, the terms. I mean, we got we got one. Um, you know, term sheet, and I looked at it. And I'm like, "Oh man, I don't think I can agree to this, right?" So, so, <laughs> yeah, the the terms were, you know, I mean, most of the VC terms are pretty good, but this one was kind of, you know, out there. So I was like, "Okay." And then, you know, I I applied to this crowdfunding platform, and um, you know, the, the, the funding the platform is called Start Engine. They're based in uh, Southern Cal, so you know, it's one of the most prominent start, you know crowdfunding platforms that are out there. And um, so they they came back to me, they did all of their due diligence and everything else. They said, yeah, we would love to have you on our on, on, on our platform. So um, so then I started comparing, I said, okay, what are you guys offering versus the traditional VC, right? And, and why should I really go with you? I mean, I know you guys selected us, but you know okay. So so here are the key reasons why I, I went with them. Firstly, that with the VC route, usually they ask for a seat on the board of directors. Yep. Uh, with the crowdfunding right, crowdfunding route, I don't have to do that, right? So that was the first thing. The second thing was, you know, on the VC route, they generally want preferred shares with a lots of a lot of strings attached to it. So meaning, you know, <laughs> if there is a exit happening, or if there is, you know, something happening, then you know, all of these things have to happen first for the VC before you as a founder get your money, kind of thing, right? In a so in a crowdfunding platform that is non-existent, it is all common shares that we sell. We don't have to you know create a separate preferred pool. We don't have to have this this you know fancy you know belts and whistles for some other set of people. No, everybody is the same. So that is kind of cool. The third thing is you know the valuation, right? I mean, when you go the VC route. Uh, you come up with an industry valuation thinking, this is what I feel my company is valued at. Of course, the VC discounts that by like 90% and says, (laughs) I don't think so. And then, (laughs) then of course, course you negotiate and you haggle, right? I mean, but that's just the standard practice that a VC goes through. Uh, With a crowdfunding platform, we don't have to do that. We go through a third-party independent research, you know, a valuation company, whatever valuation they determine is what we go with. And that's what gets accepted on the platform, right? So, So that is, those were the three main reasons why I decided to go with the crowdfunding platform. In fact, um, you know, we just signed the contract with them uh, last week. So very excited about that. And it takes about, you know, five to six weeks for the campaign to be live. So we are expecting that our campaign will be live sometime in August, so to all your listeners you know
0: uh,
1: <laughs> if if you folks are looking for a great company to invest in you know we will give you all the information and uh you can you know sign on uh and look at the kapalia's launch on the start engine platform and you know you'll be able to buy shares in our company um you know at a very very you know nominal price right now but you know of course it's it's gonna only go up from here right so yeah.
0: <laughs> of course yeah <laughs> that's a uh... That's awesome. I'll go ahead and and share that when the episode does go live here. I think that that timing should work out rather nicely. So I mean, with this latest round of of injection from the crowdfunding route, what are you what are you hoping to put that money towards? What's really next for you and the team at Kapalya?
1: Right. Yeah. So so what we have done is the product right now is built for enterprises and government. Right. So Enterprise sales, government sales are very slow. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. But you know, when when they close, they are very large, right? There could be, uh, you know, a couple of hundred thousand or even million dollar deals, right? So what we've decided is that once we get the crowdfunding um, money coming in, uh, we will we will do we will do a couple of things. So firstly, we will continue with our you know enterprise product, which is which is our flagship but we will also do a slightly scaled-down version for small and medium-sized enterprises. And Mm. we discovered that small and medium-sized enterprises are also getting hit with ransomware. And they, unlike the big enterprises, do not have the IT or the security staff in place to actually protect themselves, right? And Right. And they're at risk as much as the big enterprises and governments are. So our focus then will be to use these funds to, to target this, the SMB uh, uh, sector and to you know, really give them a very simple, easy to use subscription-based service. Like for every user you sign up, just pay us X dollars a month and then you're good to go and we will protect you from all of these things, right? So that is the first thing that we wanna do uh, because we feel that that is a market that is completely underserved right now from, from an encryption and from a ransomware standpoint. And then the second thing that we want to do is work with that three-letter agency and co-develop the technology that they have that we are licensing from them to come up with the most comprehensive, you know, counter ransomware solution that we can sell back to the enterprises and also to the government. So that is really what our plan is, and so we are super excited about, you know, the next, you know, uh, the, the the next half of you know 2020 because we feel that by the end of this, that at the end of 2021. We will have, you know, a very robust solution for SMBs that they can just go on our website, point click, bam, bam. Should be good to go. And then we will have the most comprehensive, you know, counter ransomware solution that we can start going to all of the large enterprises and, and the government.
0: Right. It sounds like quite the comprehensive roadmap there. And I mean, yeah. as far as timing, right? Probably couldn't ask for for much better, just given all the the focus on ransomware today. Uh, so it sounds like lots of of positive opportunity ahead for you. Uh, Ceremonial last question here on secure ventures is are you looking for investment or hiring? Well, we already talked about the investment piece and the crowdfunding aspect, which listeners can go ahead and check out again. I'll I'll put that start engine link in the episode description. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is the team currently hiring? Is that something that you're looking to do with that new capital?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So our our first goal is once we get the capital coming in, we will be going on a hiring spree, right? We need need good talent, and we need good talent in the US um, that we can leverage. And um, right now, one of the other things that I wanted to point out is that um, you may or may not be aware of it, but Uh, you know, women and uh, minorities are very underrepresented in the cybersecurity space. In fact, there's (laughs) only about 20% of women and and only about 26% of minorities work in this this space, right? Our goal is to, you know, change that because we feel that if we have more people from diverse backgrounds, from diverse cultures, from diverse experiences, uh, they can give a whole new perspective on how we would go about solving the same problem that, that industry is solving right now, right? I mean, the latest uh, report from Business Insider was that that the that, that current technologies don't know what to do when it comes to ransomware. You've got all these billions and billions of dollars, but people are still you know, getting hit with ransomware, right? So our goal is we get the crowdfunding coming in. You know, If any traditional VC wants to fund us, that's fine too. Um, but our objective is to hire as diverse a workforce as we potentially can, uh, and most of that we want to hire in the United States, simply because our interests are in the United States, we live here, and we need to make sure that our citizens and our companies, small, medium, large government, are all protected using the technology we will develop. And instead of thinking the old way of protecting stuff, instead of thinking of the traditional way that things have been working, um, and it has proven that it, it, it is not doing a really good job, We want to have new ideas, new ways of looking, new points of view, uh, new vantage points to look at this whole solution and say, maybe if we do it this way, we might be able to uh, make it much better and stronger. And that is what our real objective is. So we need that fund to hire talented people uh, here in the United States. I've already started working with a university in New Haven, in Connecticut. Some of the professors are working with me I've started hiring you know phd students from there. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm also looking at you know potential partnership with the uh, UC Berkeley uh, system so that I can start hiring interns from there as well and we'll be offering apprenticeships uh, to them. I want to hire as you know as many people as I can coming straight out of university with fresh ideas on how to tackle this problem. A lot of people are like kind of nervous about entering the cyber security space because they think it's very tough it's very difficult. And it's not for me, uh, but but I say no, it is because we need as many diverse ideas uh, uh, from different backgrounds and different cultures as we can to solve this problem. Because this is a big problem, and this is going to take a very big collaborative effort from everyone involved uh, to 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 solve this problem, right? So that's basically what our objectives are.
0: Right. No, I love that approach. I think. Uh, There's been negative unemployment in cybersecurity for several years now. And so encouraging uh, diverse backgrounds to get involved in the field is is pushing ultimately the the security of enterprises and our government uh, and just the globe in in the right direction. And so one of our our previous guests on the show here, Vladi Sandler at Lightspin, one of his missions at Lightspin is to keep a 50 50 balance between men and, and women, which has been a really interesting to see him pull that off. Just like you mentioned, given the, uh, stark difference in number of, of people, uh, that are, that are actually working in the field. Mm-hmm. So I uh, completely more power to you for, for following through with that and and best of luck as you go through that hiring journey.
1: Thank you so much.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Sudesh. Best of luck with the funding, the, the next steps, uh, that, that detailed roadmap and, and all the hiring to come.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, Kyle. I really appreciated uh, your time and uh, glad to be on your show.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you can write to me at Kyle at secureventures.io. I'm Kyle McNulty and you've been listening to Secure Ventures.